Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for November 11th, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. It's the 11th day of the 11th month, Armistice Day, celebrating the end of the insane slaughter of World War I on this day in 1918, now known as Veterans Day. And in Washington, D.C., the National Native American Veterans Monument will be de officially dedicated this afternoon with a ceremony and procession of Native American veterans from all across the country. And those of us whose ancestors migrated to this content continent within the last 500 years or so acknowledge that we convene today's program on territories taken by force from the peoples whose ancestors lived here from the unknown depths of time. It's the centennial of the birth of brilliant American author Kurt Vonnegut, and no doubt there are many other things to remember about this day. However, today's Forthright Radio is devoted to digesting the results of the 2022 midterm elections. Days after the election, there are still many crucial races that are too close to call, and it's too early to know which parties will control either chamber of Congress. However, the predicted red wave, or what some were projecting as a red tsunami, has not occurred. So we are delighted to welcome back two distinguished guests, David Daly and Paul Pearson. Dave Daly was our guest in June of 2020 when his book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy came out. His earlier book, Rat Eft, The True Story Behind the Secret Plan to Steal Americans' Democracy, did so much to educate us about the nationally organized anti-democracy efforts to seize political control from the majority of voters via gerrymandering and what citizens across the country are doing to wrestle majoritarian democracy back. Dave's articles appear in many outlets, including The Guardian, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, among many others. And Paul Pearson was our guest in July of 2020 when his book, co-written with Jacob Hacker, director of the Institution for Social and Policy Studies and a political science professor at Yale University called Let Them Eat Tweets, how the right rules in an age of extreme inequality came out. Paul Pearson is the John Gross Professor of Political Science at UC Berkeley. Now he and his co-author have many earlier books, including Winner Take All Politics, How Washington Made the Rich Richer and Turned Its Back on the Middle Class, Off Center, The Republican Revolution and the Erosion of American Democracy. Dave Daly and Paul Pearson are joining us via Zoom. Uh, thanks to you both for joining us today. Let's begin with opening thoughts on the midterm election in general, and then we'll get down to specific candidates and issues. I have arbitrarily decided to use alphabetical order of your last names to begin. And since KZYX is the alphabet backwards, we'll begin with Paul Pearson. Paul, thanks for joining us again. Your thoughts to begin this discussion on the midterms. Well, thanks for having me on, Joy, and it's great to be here with, with Dave, because I, I know that will help us get into a, a deep discussion about the state of American democracy. 
Um, so, but just a, just initially, um, my, my top line reaction would be that this was a very bad night for the Republican Party, um, at, at least at least as a party that's trying to, to win as many seats and maximize its control over politics. You know, if you go um, to the last four presidents, all of them faced a midterm where they controlled, where their party controlled the House, the Senate and the presidency and where they were polling in the low 40s. Uh, and uh, so you can you can look at Trump, Obama, Bush, and Clinton. All of them faced that experience, um, and all of them saw their parties get trounced. Uh, you know, uh, Obama famously referred to the 2010 election as a shellacking, uh, but and the uh, you know other presidents experienced something similar to that. Uh, there were some who expected, as you said in, in your intro, there were some who expected that that was going to happen uh, last night uh, or on Tuesday. Uh, but it clearly didn't. Um, it may be, I think it seems more likely than not that Republicans will gain a very narrow majority in the House. They are unlikely to gain control of the Senate. Uh, they did, um, uh, less, I think, less well down ballot, too, when you look at state races than many people expected that they would do. Um, the wave just didn't happen. Uh, and I do think that that's the story of the election. And I think it also means uh, that for the next 18 months or so, one of the really vital uh, conversations that we're going to be having and what we're going to be watching is what is going to happen to the Republican Party, uh, given the re results of this election, and will it lead, finally, uh, to any kind of reckoning within the party about the path that they've been on, which is, I think, a very much a democracy-threatening path. Uh, that they've been on really, I think, for a very long time, but especially since Donald Trump um, came to the front of the stage. Uh, and so that and just the last thing I would say is um, that democracy was very much on the ballot Tuesday night. I'm sure we're going to get into this in, in more depth. But um, if, if there had been a Republican red wave uh, on Tuesday night, I think we would really be asking ourselves whether the U.S. had gone over the edge of uh, slipping into a, a system that we wouldn't recognize after a few years as being a democratic system. I'm sure we're going to talk about this more. I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you, Paul. Dave, how about you? What, how, what do you want to open with for our listeners? Thank you for having me um, and a pleasure to be on with Paul, who is um, a hero and one of the real brilliant political scientists uh, of the nation. My shelf is filled with the books of him. Of his and Jacobs, um, they are indispensable and highly recommended. Um, this is, I think, we're all a little surprised that the red wave that so many uh, expected, that as as Paul astutely describes, has you know followed the uh, first midterm election of just about every president going uh, going back many decades, uh, simply did not materialize. Um, and we are likely looking at um, Republicans with a narrow edge in the House, uh, Democrats probably retaining a narrow edge in the U.S. Senate. Um, there was some good news. If you look, if you look down ballot, um, especially for those who are concerned about the state of American democracy and the kinds of officials who are going to administer and certify elections. If you look at secretary of state races in places like Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, 
um, you know, places where there were, you know, election deniers on the ballot in competitive swing states where this could have really thrown January 6, 2025 into the kind of chaos that um, would have made four years ago look like a dress rehearsal. Um, you know, a lot of that was averted. Um, in the state of Arizona right now, the 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 candidate with the most votes uh, statewide turns out to be the Democrat running for a secretary of state on on very much in, um, a, a pro-democracy um, a, a platform. So I think that is um, a really worth mentioning. Um, on the other hand, I think that a lot of the anti-majoritarian tendencies in our politics were also emphasized and revealed even as we sort of breathe a sigh of relief that some of the worst possibilities did not come to fruition. Um, I think you can make a really strong case that um, given how close control of the U.S. House will be, that partisan and racial gerrymandering, some of which was aided and abetted by state courts and the U.S. Supreme Court, help tip the balance of control in the U.S. House. Uh, if you look at states like uh, Florida, uh, with Ohio, uh, uh, Texas, if you look at the uh, voting rights uh, case from Alabama and how that affected maps as well in, in Georgia and Louisiana, um, I think it's really easy to identify somewhere in, in the realm of 10 to 14 seats that uh, partisan and racial gerrymandering affected and and handed control of, 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 of the chamber to Republicans. Um, and then if you look further down ballot at state legislatures, um, you know, the the anti-democratic drift of of states like Wisconsin and 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 North Carolina and Ohio really accelerated. Um, these are states like Wisconsin, where you know Democrats won more votes statewide again, um, and they're going to have just over about a third of the seats in the state assembly. And this isn't the first time. This is this is going on, you know, twelve years of this now. Um, so there are many American states that um, simply don't resemble anything close to a democracy. And, you know, it's not the the bright red states. It's, it's the purple states that were gerrymandered a decade ago that uh, still are in, um, um, in something resembling entrenched one party minority rule. Thank you, Dave. Um I'm glad you brought up the January 6th because prior to the election with uh, pundits and uh, President Biden, for example, uh, warning about uh, our democracy being in danger, it seemed to me that it, uh, I was concerned that it would be too much of an, um, an intellectual sort of thing. So my question is, what role do you think that the January 6th committee hearings have had, plus the visuals on the day, so that Americans could actually see the uh, siege of the Capitol, and then the committee uncovering um, in a very organized and effective way um, what led up to it, how well organized it was, and that. So my question is, 
what role do you think the January 6th committee hearings have played in educating Americans on the danger our democracy is in? Uh, Dave, since you brought up January 6th, why don't you begin? And then, Paul, I'll ask you the same question. You know, I've... Uh... I'm not sure, honestly. I think it's a terrific question. Um, I don't. I don't think in very many polls that January sixth was sort of high on the mind of voters. But I do think that the general state of democracy, even though the media tried to downplay it, and I think was actually fairly critical of, of President Biden's uh, speech, which I thought was actually quite important and necessary, and wish he'd been. You know, more active and vocal on these questions of democracy over over the last couple of of years. Um, I think if you live in Wisconsin, if you live in North Carolina, if you live in Ohio, if you live in these gerrymandered states, um, you are well aware of the threats to democracy. And then it's not theoretical. You know, I mean, Wisconsin is is one of the states right now where, after the Dobbs decision, it is effectively illegal to to get an abortion in the state of Wisconsin because of a law that has been on the books since the mid-1840s. And even though 70% of voters in Wisconsin uh, would like to see that law changed, and even though the Democratic governor of Wisconsin called a special session to uh, try to force the, the issue, the, the conservative legislature gaveled in and out of that special session in less than a minute. They simply knew that they did not have to do anything about it. They didn't have to listen to the people. Uh, they were insulated from the ballot box and uh, they did not listen to the people. So I think if you live in these states, um, January 6th might be on your mind, but day-to-day -day life, I think, in some of these states where the ballot box and the people's will have sort of become disconnected um, is 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 an everyday, you know, kitchen table issue. Paul, what would you add to that? Um, well, I, I think just to start at the broadest level, I think what the election showed was that voters had big reservations about the Republican Party. Right. Uh, uh, the journalist Ron Brownstein referred to this as a double negative election. Right. That that um, Biden is not popular and people are worried about the economy. There are lots of reasons why you would expect that Democrats wouldn't do well. But there was a lot of evidence in the polling. And I think in the last week or two, people kind of moved away from the, the polling, uh, which which also, I think, on the whole, didn't suggest that there was going to be a red wave. But people sort of got caught up in the idea that the fundamentals of how people felt about the economy and inflation and Biden's approval rating meant that there would be a red wave. Well, the reason, the main reason I think that didn't happen was because people were quite worried about the Republican Party. Uh, and you can see that, for example, the electorate, as you would expect in a midterm, it appears to be um, to be slightly a red electorate. Um, you know, you got at least a little bit of the effect that you usually get in midterms, which is that the out party, their people are mad and they come out and vote. And the in party people are either complacent or kind of disillusioned because they haven't gotten everything that they hope to get. And so they stay home. Uh, there was less of that than there has been in other midterms, but there was some of that. But independents seem to have broken for the Democratic Party. 
um, quite strongly in, in some cases, like in Pennsylvania. And more Republicans, not a lot, we're in a very tribal era, but more Republicans seem to have um, defected to the Democrats than the other way around. Um, and all of that suggests to me that there was a lot of concern about the Republican Party. Now, exactly where January 6th and the January 6th hearings fits into that, it's a little hard to parse because there's other stuff going on, right? There's just a, there's the looming shadow of Donald Trump, um, who is very popular with the Republican ba base, but quite unpopular with everyone else. Uh, there is the Dobbs decision, uh, which I think unquestionably played an important role, uh, both in mobilizing uh, people who cared about abortion rights, um, but also in driving home this broader message that you had, uh, in this case of the Supreme Court, but a Supreme Court backed uh, by Republican pol politicians, basically constructed by Republican politicians, a Supreme Court that was quite extreme and quite eager to do things that most Americans didn't want to see them do. Um, so I do think the January, certainly the events of January 6th, but I also think the hearings, and as you pointed out, Joy, I think, I think this is right. I think those visuals um, uh, resonate with people. Um, and it, it may not be at the very top of their list, but it but it it helps to it, I think it helped to solidify this broader challenge that I think Republicans now face. I think the Republican brand now faces a big challenge that it is seen, especially by younger voters, uh, but not only by younger voters, that it is seen as an extreme and potentially dangerous party. I would add that um, many pundits kind of frame the hearings as whether or not they're going to quote unquote get Trump. And I think that their strategy of having virtually all witnesses as Republicans freed up awareness that Republicans are not monolithically pro-Trump and that there is um, a cadre of Republicans who are um, dedicated to the Constitution, to the rule of law, and that and and fairness. You know, if you lose, you lose, and you um, leave the stage gracefully. Um, and I th I don't see any way to calibrate or quantify um, how much that was an effect, but I think it is an effect. Um, I'll just say, sorry, if I could just jump in with one other th thing about this, which is um, that if you look at the election deniers who ran um, and uh, I mean, especially like new candidates, um, not not talking about members of Congress who you know, who refused to certify the election. So but but new folks who ran on the Republican side and often did, you know, were embraced by Trump and did well in their primaries, uh, in part because they were election deniers. They performed very badly on the whole in these elections, worse than Republicans uh, who had staked out more moderate ground. And I think that speaks to what you're saying, Joy, that there is there's a subset of the, of the electorate not particularly enamored with the Democrats, but independents. A lot of those, some of those independents are former Republicans, but also people who are still in the Republican Party, um, you know, who uh, who will vote for some Republican candidates. But not for those who are who are you know pro January sixth you know or election deniers. Dave, you wanted to say something. Um, I think that one of the heartening things we saw on 
Tuesday night was that some of the Republican candidates who lost gave concession speeches. Uh, I mean, that we didn't used to have to highlight that as a, a, a sign of the system working. But I mean, after 2020, I think we do. Um, so there was a little bit of some return to the small D democratic norms of winners and losers and sort of how you behave after losing an election. On the other hand, when you look at the polls for the Republican Party and the presidential nomination in 2024, the kind of constitutional conservatives that you speak of, you know, a Liz Cheney or somebody like that, um, is polling at about a 3%. Um, so I don't know what the appetite is for that kind of uh, conservatism within the Republican Party. I imagine that there will be quite a fight um, over the course of the next 18 months to try to define and grab hold uh, of the party. And where it goes will be a question of great consequence. Uh, you can't you can't have a functioning democracy when one of the uh, two political parties um, doesn't believe in democracy and and won't accept the results of elections or thinks the only ones that are valid are the ones that they win. Well, we've already skirted around the issue of abortion and the role that that's played in the elections. Um, the Democrats certainly uh, organized their get out the vote efforts around uh, the, the abortion issues. And to recap briefly, California, Vermont, and Michigan codified reproductive rights in their constitutions. Um, and by very large majorities of, of more or less 60%. Uh, and proposal three defined reproductive freedom as quote, the right to make and effectuate decisions about all matters relating to pregnancy, including but not limited to prenatal care, childbirth, postpartum care, contraception, sterilization, abortion care, miscarriage management and infertility care. So that certainly was a pretty big tent there. Um, Kentucky, also um, had had a vote in um, in favor of reproductive rights. Kansas had already done this way back in August, where um, conservatives, I think, overplayed their hand putting that on the ballot, and um, they were astonished by the results. And even in Montana, uh, there was. Uh, a, a thing on the ballot that didn't exactly address abortion, but would require with very severe penalties for physicians to give um, extraordinary care to uh, infant babies that are born, whether by abortion, miscarriage or what. Um, and this became a very emotional issue in Montana because uh, opponents pointed out that this contravened uh, parental rights to how to deal with babies that aren't going to survive. Um, it would have forced, you know, uh, torturous medical care on them in the process of dying within a day or so. Anyway, um, it got really, it got people really hopping. Uh, do either of you uh, have thoughts about these implications um, in terms of where we stand politically currently? Um, show your hands so I can know who wants to go first. <laughs> this is tricky, you know, trying to organize this. 
nobody. Okay, I, Paul, you got your hand yeah, up. I was, I, was, I, I, I was being polite and wanting to de defer to the person earlier in the alphabet, but um, but I'll jump in. Um, uh, though I, I'm not sure I have much to add beyond what I, what I already said. I mean, I think it's clear that abortion did play an important role um, in, in this election. Um, you can see it, for example, in there are some states where I've seen data on what happened to voter registration after the Dobbs decision came down. Pennsylvania is a good example of this, where you see a dramatic shift in registration and um, and party switches um, away from the Republican Party towards the Democratic Party after the Dobbs decision is made. And of course, there was and, and Democrats really leaned into the issue of abortion in um, in their campaigns. Um, and there was some skepticism, I think, expressed uh, about that. Uh, but it was clearly it was clearly quite successful. Um, uh, Governor Whitmer in Michigan, I think it's a really good example of this. And um, I think uh, her success in running for reelection is something that that is deservedly getting quite a bit, quite a bit of attention. Uh, I, I think we're now in a in a situation where I would expect the Democrats are thinking about how they can get abortion-related votes on the ballot in 2024, mm -hmm. um, similar to the way that there was a time when Republicans tried to do that around, around gay marriage issues, when they thought that it was a way to get their voters to the polls. Um, and I think, you know, ab abortion has shown that it that it can galvanize voters and galvanize voters in a way that's, that's favorable to the Democratic Party. And then again, I'll just, just to reinforce something I said before, I think the abortion issue both has a direct effect on mobilizing voters, but I think it also had this effect of reinforcing some other things uh, that were going that were in the political atmosphere that made voters wary of the Republican Party. Well, like what? <laughs> well, like Jan like January sixth, uh -huh. uh, like Donald Trump, um, mm -hmm. election denial, that kind of, those kinds of things. Dave, you wanted to add something. I think that everything Paul said is right, and yet I'm not convinced that the Republican Party is going to moderate or that it's able to moderate on this issue, or frankly, that given the courts, their advantages in state Supreme Courts and their advantages in gerrymandered legislatures nationwide, if they have to moderate where they stand, um, the numbers and public opinion has not been really on their side on this issue, even in the states where they've been advancing some of the most extreme restrictions. And that has not stopped them, uh, in part because of the way that they're insulated from voters through redistricting, in, in, um, in part because voters in places like Ohio and North Carolina, where... Uh, you know, large majorities back um, reproductive rights, uh, but voters also uh, just put very conservative states Supreme Courts into office. Um, so I think we might wonder whether voters um, who, you know, feel one way on issues um, recognize the consequences for those issues and some of these other down ballot races that are going to be really, really important to protecting and preserving those rights in a lot of states, especially places like North Carolina, where 
due to redistricting, Republicans came super close to achieving super majorities, veto-proof majorities in 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 these states um, that would allow them to pretty much enact whatever they wanted to over even 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 the people and even Democratic governors. Um, so. Certainly public opinion in, in Kansas, in Montana, in Kentucky, not on their side, uh, but I'm not sure it will it, it will change behavior. Dave, um, you have done so much to educate all of us about how to um, energize citizenry. Uh, to take back democracy. And one of the ways of doing that that you've reported on is the ranked choice voting system, which can be a little complicated to understand, but there are um, a couple of races that are being determined by this. Uh, one in Maine um, between uh, Democrat representative Jared Golden and his um, opponent, former representative Bruce Palenkin, um, that's going to uh, a ranked choice runoff. Golden had 48.6% of the votes. Palenkin had 44.6%. And also in Alaska um, with the race uh, up there. So could you please explain to our listeners how this works? Sure. Um, and there's a couple different uh, forms of ranked choice voting at work in in, in those elections. Uh, but effectively, ranked choice voting um, allows voters to uh, take all of the candidates on the ballot and put them in order. And it works kind of like an instant runoff. If nobody reaches 50 percent, uh, the last place candidate is eliminated and those votes are, are redistributed to the uh, second place voters um, in Maine. For example, how it how it worked, um, you know, back in 2018 when um, Jared Golden was first elected was um, you had, uh, I believe that was you know four or five candidates running in that election. So um, oftentimes, if you're if you're interested in the in the in the third party, in the green, in the libertarian, and in, in an independent, uh, you are afraid that you're sort of throwing away your vote, or you are you know helping elect the candidate you like least. With ranked choice voting, you are able to express the fullness of your opinion. Um, and um, so after the first round of of voting there, um, uh, uh, Poliquin, the Republican, actually had the lead the uh, first time around by about a point and a half or so. Uh, but the, the folks who originally backed some of those third party candidates, um, you know, um, you know, rallied around um, around around Golden in later rounds. Um, and th the beauty of it is you always get a winner who's got 50% of the vote. Um, and it saves the the time and the energy and the and the work of a runoff as we're seeing in Georgia right now, where you know that race is probably gonna cost $75 million and and unleash a you know a billion dollars in you know if it turns out control of the Senate is at stake, that's gonna be a you know a costly month of of negative ads in in the state of Georgia, um, and what we know about runoffs is usually something like ninety eight percent of the time or something you end up with you know lower voter turnout. So this way everybody gets their say, um, everybody gets it at one time. No one has to come back to the polls, and you end up 
with a majoritarian winner. Paul, did you want to speak to that also? Uh, I mean, Dave's really the, the expert here. I mean, I do think um, uh, that there are a bunch of interesting policy reforms that are being discussed, including ranked choice voting, which one can hope would have some effect on diminishing polarization within the American political system, um, and and we can see some we can see some signs of that. Um, of course, one problem is that the states that are most likely to adopt these kinds of reforms are probably the ones who lead the, need them least. Um, and you can get into some tricky worlds again. Dave knows more about this than I do, but. Um, you know, gerrymandering reform, again, is more likely in the places that probably need at least or at least, you know, have run the run the danger. You can get you can get a situation, for example. So so the New York courts undid the Democrats gerrymandering there, um, but courts in many Republican held states did not. Right. And and again, as, as Dave said earlier, that probably affected the um, uh, the control control of the House in this election. Um, so, but, I, you know, I think there is more to be said here, and, and Dave got us talking about this earlier, there is more to be said about the ongoing crisis of democracy um, and the extent to which um, minoritarian politics can rule um, in, in many contexts in American politics and the, da the dangers that exist with that. We could talk about the Supreme Court. We could talk about the United States Senate. Uh, and, you know, as Dave was saying, many, many state legislatures that I think it's just right. He's right to say it. It sounds weird to many American ears, but these are not democracies, right? Wisconsin is not a democracy. Right? If you can win the majority of the vote and end up with a, just a little more than a third of the seats, that's not a democracy, right? So, and, and Wisconsin's an extreme case, but but not that extreme. There are, there are, a lot, there are lots of them out there. So, um, so I do think, even as we say that Tuesday was a good, I think Tuesday night was a good night for American democracy. Uh, we need to recognize the ongoing challenges, which are quite severe. And uh, ranked choice voting is, is one interesting thing to look at. There are many others, but I think we need to recognize that there are some, some very fundamental challenges and places in, in American politics, including, I would say, the U.S. Senate, uh, and the Supreme Court, where a minority of voters wield way disproportionate power. Um, and it also, the last thing I'll say at this point that I think it would be it would be fun to try to talk to talk about a little bit more. What happens to the Republican Party over the next eighteen months is is going to be extremely important um, and interesting to watch. And I agree with Dave that there's no particular reason to think that just because they had a disappointing election. That, that that's going to lead them to say, gee, we really need to understand why those voters in Michigan or Pennsylvania didn't go our way. Um, Republicans had a disappointing election in 2012, right? And uh, they did a big autopsy report. And when you're conducting an autopsy, it means the patient died. Um, and even the autopsy report in which Republicans analyzed their brand and their politics and how they were going to talk to younger voters and voters of color. Um, and they had an entire report that laid out the more moderate centrist road that they had to take. And they did not follow that 
road. They went down the path of Donald Trump instead, I would argue in part because um, of some of the forces that they unleashed in the redistricting after 2011 that kind of put the base of the party in charge. Um, And so the idea that because they had another disappointing evening now and to, you know, some of us, it looks pretty clear that, well, the sensible common sense approach would be to moderate yourselves and talk to everybody. They don't have to do that because of what Paul has identified here. They don't have to do this because they have an advantage in the electoral college. Um, and that twice now in the last six presidential elections, um, a Republican has managed to uh, win the Electoral College and the White House without the popular vote. And it came closer than most people are willing to admit that to happening again in 2020, when effectively Joe Biden wins the White House by 7 million votes in the popular vote, uh, you know, an even wider, uh, two and a half times what Hillary Clinton won by in 2016. But really, the margin in 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 the Electoral College was, uh, you know, 10,400 votes in Arizona, 11,700 in Wisconsin, 20,000 in Wisconsin, and uh, about uh, 21,000 in the single congressional district in Nebraska. Um, and then you're looking at a 269-269 tie. Um, and Lord knows what happens on a January 6th in that, in that situation. You know, 70,000 votes go another way, and the will of 7 million is overturned. Those two conservative presidents who won the White House without the popular vote uh, appointed five of the six conservatives on the Supreme Court. Uh, that Supreme Court was confirmed by a U.S. Senate uh, that is deeply unrepresentative of the American people. Um, I mean, if you look at it right now, you've got 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans, but the 50 Democrats represent 41 million more people. People make a big uh, point out of the fact that you know California has as many senators of as uh, Wyoming, even though it is uh, 67 times the size of Wyoming, but Wyoming is smaller than about 135 American counties <laughs> that also, you know, uh, you know, don't have two senators. Um, and so w- w- when you look at the structural inequalities, you know, baked into into the Electoral College, into the Senate, gerrymandering in the House, the U.S. Supreme Court, gerrymandering in state legislatures all the way down, American democracy is the is a frog in the pot uh, and 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 the water has the temperature has been rising for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about demographics then, because um, there has been reporting that, well, first of all, we have the first uh, gen Xer. Is it? I get confused with the gens. Um, the twenty-five-year-old in Florida. Uh, who the Gen is, Z, I think. Z, yeah. Thank you. X, Y, Z, K, Z, Y, X. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, so there's that. And um, many people who are analyzing this um, said that there it was the second highest turnout in midterm history for uh, people in the 18 to 29 year old vote, even to the point where some uh, Republican-leaning pundits are talking about raising the voting age, some to 21, and so I've even heard some saying we should raise the voting age to 28. Um, 
so anyway, here's here's a quick rundown as I understand it. Voters 65 uh, and older voted um, a Republican by 13 by 13 percent over 50 percent. So those 45 to 64 voted Republican by 11 percent. Those 30 to 44 voted Democrat by 2 percent. And those 18 to 29 voted Democrat by 28%. And then um, then the, the Gen Zers, the 18 to 24, Democrats by 61%. So, um, and these are all um, advantage of the, you know, these parties by this amount. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about um a more demo democracy i i'm purposefully not saying using the adjective democratic small d democratic because um i think it's been weaponized so i say pro democracy instead of pro democratic anyway so um do either of you think that demographics will be effective i know in the long run they may be but in the short run to remedy some of these structural issues you've just been talking about. David, you brought up the structural issues. Why don't you take a- I do not. I think that this, I, I think, I think God bless Generation Z and I'm gonna go out and sign up for a TikTok account right now just to thank them. And um, I'm, 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 I'm very grateful for their involvement and engagement and turnout. Um, but the structural, the structural impediments have been designed to hold back a demographics. Uh, that is the entire point of them. Um, so in 2008, a multiracial coalition comes together to elect the nation's first black president. Democrats take a supermajority in, in the US Senate. And a lot of folks were talking then 14 years ago about how the inevitable demographics of, of the nation and, and the changing population was going to create a, a durable, enduring, a democratic majority. There was some ter terrific political science books written on it. Um, and I think that they were uh, right in many ways that you know that coalition was there and that that was, was what that coalition would do. But the structural impediments were directly placed in the path of that emerging democratic coalition. Um, and so the gerrymandering that was a direct result of the 2008 elections, Republicans looking for a path back to power, uh, recognizing that 2010 was a census year and that, you know, first year midterms, with the exception of this one under presidents, tend to be uh, good for them and that they could... Uh, take control of state legislatures in the House that way. Um, but then also what uh, followed, uh, say the, the Shelby County versus Holder case from the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court uh, that undid preclearance uh, protections of the Voting Rights Act and allowed so many states, uh, so many of these states that we talk about as being uh, so close, um, you know, Arizona, Georgia, Texas, others, uh, changing states, uh, and, and freed them um, to enact all kinds of voters oppression and, and voter ID and precinct changes and voter roll purges and the likes of which um, uh, 
we've been observing over the course of the last uh, 10 years. Um, and so with state legislatures, with the courts, with ever more surgical methods of putting barriers in front of those who you don't want to get to the polls, you can hold back demographic waves as Republicans have for the last 14 years. I don't think you can do it forever, but you can certainly keep kicking the can down the road and uh, damaging American democracy in the process. That was Dave Daly. Uh, Paul Pearson, you are a UC Berkeley professor, so you have way more interaction with Gen Zers than probably either of us do. Um, what do you think of this issue with the demographic changes? Well, I, I certainly think you're right to, to mention it. And, um, and the way that you described uh, what's, what's happening with different age cohorts is right, and and of course, over time, that's like that's likely to push, um, you know, some of the some of the uh, the strongest rep Republican cohorts are eventually are going to drop drop out of the, the electorate and um, and and be replaced by people who who maybe have different political views. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to agree with with something that Dave said that I think is very important, which is that there are there are very powerful obstructions to that kind of demographic wave taking hold. And just to, to give one very concrete example, um, the, the 24 Senate map looks extremely challenging for Democrats. Um, and it was basically the flip side of the fact that they had a very good year in 2018, uh, which means as one of those midterm elections where a president got, um, uh, you know, had, had bad um, results, um, but um, uh, but they're they're just going they're going to be a, there are a lot of vulnerable um, vulnerable uh, Democrats in twenty four. So you could easily imagine, even if a Democrat wins the White House in twenty four, that Republicans would win the Senate, um, and then it would be no Supreme Court justices for you, right? So um, so those obstacles are really uh, as as Dave points out, they're 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 very. Um, they're very considerable. The other thing I just would mention about this point about about demographics, and, it, and I apologize for not bringing this up earlier in the hour because it's hard to have a discussion about American politics without talking explicitly about race um, for for forty five minutes. Um, because of course that's the other big demographic transition. You know, we're we're moving um, from a country in which whites were numerically dominant. Um, to one in which they won't be, um, and um, and for the first time, really in the, in the post civil rights era, you got um, the beginnings of kind of a multiracial coalition in one political party, right? Uh, as a as a kind of ongoing thing that could viably compete uh, for um, majority control in the country, and, and I think it's very hard to understand what's happened to the Republican Party without recognizing that that's that that has been an absolutely fundamental part of it, right? That there are people when when people say their country is being taken away, um, explicitly or maybe in some cases unconsciously, this is what they're thinking about, right? Um, that um, that a country in which uh, white privilege was the dominant political reality um, is being challenged in a fundamental way, and it's been challenged because of democratic change channeled through 
because of demographic change channeled through democratic processes. Um, and so the, the challenges to those democratic processes are part of that, are part of the reaction to that. Um, and as Dave said, like, you know, eventually given enough time, if you can keep kind of the bicycle of democracy just moving forward um, in enough time, given enough time, I do think these barriers, these structural barriers, maybe not the Senate, um, but other ones um, will, um, can, be, can be overcome um, in places like Texas, for example. Uh, you know, that would, be, that would be a critical swing. Um, if, if, if that happened in Texas, that would, that would really matter politically. The question is whether we can hold our democracy together long enough to let those processes play out. And I think that's very uncertain. What about the um, strategies of um, the parties? The Democrats historically have posed themselves as the big tent party in the well, certainly by the time uh, Trump came and did his election, he was um, somewhat successful in framing the Democrats as the party of the elites, which is kind of funny because I see the Republicans as the party of the oligarchs. But anyway, he has been successful in framing it that way to a certain extent. Um, people now speak of the Republican Party as the party of the working class. And that's certainly how the base of um, the Trumpist loyalists see themselves. And the Republicans have made a very um, strong effort to recruit, at, at least at the nominee level, um, people of color, women. Um, and this historically has always been more what the Democrats have done. So do either of you, well, first of all, do you agree with what I just said or um, how do you feel about those kind of trends? Well, so I just, I mean, one of the striking things about American politics now is um, that income has been become much less of a predictor of uh, people's party identification than it used to be. So like, you know, it used to be, the higher your income went, the more likely you were to be a Republican. Mm -hmm. um, and that is now, that's no longer true. I mean, it's true um, in, in some parts of the country, it's more true, but, I, but it's not actually, you know, that I think of the 25 uh, richest counties in the United States, uh, 24 of them have Democratic, or 20, the 25 richest congressional districts, uh, 24 of them had Democrats. Um, mm -hmm. And going into the last election, so the you know the Democrats have become kind of a they are there's a way in which they are a party of the, of the I mean, both parties are parties of, of different different groups of elites, and both of them um, have um, built coalitions that then reach down uh, the income distribution um, and and have to find ways to hold that coalition together. I mean, I so I I just I would hesitate about saying I don't when people say. Republicans are becoming the party of the working class. They're becoming the party of the white working class. Right? They're not, you know, and that, that's a really important, that's a really important distinction um, to make. Um, and I think so far, actually, the evidence suggests that with only a few exceptions, like Florida, which, you know, if we had more time, we could talk about the, the distinctive election results that you got in New York and in Florida 
in 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 this uh, in this election. But if you, uh, leaving Florida aside, you know, my sense is that the inroads that Republicans have made with um, uh, middle and lower income uh, people of color are they're quite limited. They're actually quite limited. Uh, you know, and I think that's what the exit polls are going to bring out. So um, rhetorically, yes, the Republicans have become a, a populist party in, in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, you look at what, the, what they want to do if they get into office, they don't look very populist, certainly not economic populism. They are already, Kevin McCarthy was already talking about how they were going to use the threat of not allowing the debt ceiling to be raised to do things like go after entitlement programs. Right. Um, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid programs um, that working that white the white working class, you know, definitely needs and supports. Um, so uh, it's, this is just really murky territory to think about, um, you know, the, the Republican Party is becoming in any sense a working class party. Dave Daly, you were nodding. Do you do you have things you want to add to that or we can go on? Well, I'm just nodding along. Uh, I think Paul's exactly right. Yeah. Well, um, let's talk about Florida and New York. Um, Flo I think Florida was less surprising. Um, Dave, you mentioned earlier about the failed attempt of the Democrats to, um, or maybe it was Paul, but the failed attempts of Democrats to gerrymander New York to their advantage the democratically appointed Supreme Court justices in New York said, no way. Um, and then we ended up with um, a, kind of a red wave in New York. Uh, what do you have to say about that? Um, I think it's I think it's complicated, but um, let me take my best shot at it. Um, in 2019, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in, in Rucho versus Common Cause, they, they shuttered the federal courts to partisan gerrymandering claims at exactly the moment that we needed the courts to step in the most and at a time when we had really clear academic and uh, and sociological methods to show when gerrymanders had gone wildly too far and the courts, Democratic appointed judges, Republican appointed judges and states all understood this and um, maps have been overturned in Wisconsin and Ohio and Michigan and Maryland and North Carolina and all over the place, uh, Florida. Um, so, it goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, and uh, as soon as as Kavanaugh replaces Kennedy, uh, the conservative bloc has got the fifth vote to make this a non-justiciable political issue, close the federal courts. And effectively, what this did was it said um, there will be no federal oversight of this. Uh, it was a green light to all of these legislatures around the country. Uh, and r removed any speed limit on gerrymandering. It effectively said, go ahead and do whatever you want to your heart's content. The only thing that could hold you back really would be a state Supreme Court. Um, and Republicans, you know, and, and Roberts uh, wrote that, you know, in, in some places, uh, those courts had been effective at, at, at holding gerrymanders back. Um, what that effectively means is that um, you had a maximally gerrymandered congressional map, um, the fewest number of competitive seats on this map in, in, in modern times, according to a lot of analysts. Um, and the map looked for a while as if sort of this maximally gerrymandered map would provide some sort of rough partisan balance. 
Um, and then the Democratic appointed Supreme Court in New York undid the gerrymander that was done there. A terrible gerrymander. Uh, they were right to do this, um, but it threw the national map off. Um, and that was followed by Ron DeSantis in Florida, effectively running roughshod over the Florida Constitution, where, where voters in 2010 enacted fair district amendments uh, and, and said, you cannot do partisan gerrymandering. Uh, and he forced through a map that um, uh, took the state from uh, 1610 uh, to uh, 27. I believe they also gained a seat in, in apportionment this time around. So what you saw was Republicans running roughshod over a constitution um, and and their judges not enforcing that constitution. And Thanks, David. Dave, we're, we're really out of time. Um, I want to oh, give way too long. Uh, no, no. As you said, it's very complicated. I want to give you each um, uh, 30 seconds for closing remarks. And Dave, we got you on the screen, so go for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think uh, the real question in American politics right now and in our democracy is um, we are becoming a multiracial nation and can we become a multiracial democracy? And uh, the answer to that question over our history uh, has been that has been no. Uh, well, been... sorry, Dave, got to cut you off. Paul, you've got yes. 15 seconds. Sorry. <laughs> I, uh, people should read Dave's books. Um, thank you, Joy, uh, for really doing a great interview. I think we, we covered a, a lot of important points. Well, thank you both, Paul Pearson and Dave Daly, for joining us today on Forthright Radio. We thank you very much for your work and for being our guests again on Forthright Radio. Thanks for having us. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.